I do want to get back into the book of Samuel soon, but this morning we are looking at Psalm 78. Uh, We have read and sung uh, parts of it. It is a long psalm, but it's a very important psalm to know. And, And really, you shouldn't think of this as an interruption of our study of Samuel. I know we've already interrupted Samuel, but you shouldn't think of this sermon as an interruption of our study in Samuel. Think of it maybe as a quick detour because Psalm 78 actually retells part of the book of Samuel. In fact, it retells the part of the book that I've just been preaching through in 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, right, in uh, that section. And uh, actually what I would like to do from time to time as we go through Samuel is take these little detours off into the book of Psalms because so many of the Psalms arise from events that happen in the book of Samuel. They're often written by David by, uh, about things that are happening in his life. Uh, events that are recorded for us in Samuel. Now, Psalm 78 is not that way. It is a psalm of Asaph, not a psalm of David. And it's written many years later, but it does reflect back on events that happen in 1 Samuel, among other things. Uh, Psalm 78 is a history psalm. It covers a big chunk of Israel's history. Uh, You've got about 500 years covered in 72 verses. 500 years in 72 verses. Think about that. America as a nation is almost 250 years old. So this psalm covers a time frame that is about twice as long as our country has existed. You know, there is that old saying, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. That saying really could summarize this psalm. That saying really is true. It is dangerous to not know history. It's dangerous to not know your history or to know it and forget it. That's dangerous. It's interesting to think about it this way. Many of our cultural battles today uh, really come from widespread ignorance of history. If we are ignorant of our history, then others can rewrite that history for us, and we're defenseless against it. And how people understand history really does matter. Think about this as an example. Secularists will tell us that the history of the church is a history of oppression and bigotry and backwardness, and they'll use the history of the church against the church. Now, in reality, while, of course, the church is far from perfect and is always filled with sinners, in reality, the history of the church is largely the opposite of what secularists say. The church has spread love for truth and literacy and learning everywhere she's gone. There is no institution in history that has done more for the poor and the downtrodden than the church. It's the church's teaching that laid the foundation for human rights and for limited government. Uh, The modern hospital and the modern university are uh, basically inventions of the Christian church. But if we don't know our history, we can't defend ourselves against these false historical accusations against our people, our heritage. Or take American history today. We are told that our nation has always been secular and must be secular by design. And the First Amendment requires us to privatize our faith and keep it out of public life and not let our Christian faith influence politics. That's the claim that's made about our nation's history. But a close study of American history gives a very different 
picture. You've heard me talk about this before. Nine out of the 13 original states had established churches at the state level when the Constitution was ratified. I'm not saying that's ideal, but that, that was in fact the case. And that tells you something about how the First Amendment was historically understood. Further, America inherited the British common law tradition going back to King Alfred the Great, and that tradition is deeply rooted in the Bible, specifically in the Torah. So many of our legal customs and legal principles come out of the Mosaic Law. Uh, in the collected writings of the American founders, the Apostle Paul is quoted constantly. In fact, the Apostle Paul is quoted more often than William Blackstone, who's known as the father of law. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is quoted twice as much as John Locke. You know, so Moses is being quoted more than John Locke. But we have largely forgotten this history, this legacy. And that is a big reason why our nation is in the bad shape that we're in. Or consider this. Right now, one of the reasons we are seeing a resurgence, resurgence of anti-Semitism uh, in our nation is because we have forgotten even much more recent history. We have forgotten it. Kids coming out of American public schools and going off to universities have not been taught the truth about World War II. And so we have forgotten about the racism of the Nazis and the horror of the concentration camps. We've forgotten these things. And so we're in danger of repeating them. A recent study of young adults in America found that 66% had no idea what Auschwitz was. No idea what Auschwitz was all about. Ignorance of history is dangerous. Those who forget the past run the risk of repeating its worst tragedies. Forgetting the past dooms your future. It's really that simple. And that is why Asaph wrote Psalm 78. When a people lose their collective memory, they lose their way. When they collectively lose their memory, they lose their identity. And so it is crucial for that memory to be preserved and passed on from one generation to the next, like passing a baton in a relay race. That memory has to be passed on. Psalm 78, it's clear from the opening verses, is especially a history lesson for children. So kids, this psalm is especially written for your benefit. This psalm is written as a curriculum for fathers to use with their children so they can pass these key stories along to their children. Asaph here is teaching covenantal remembrance. Covenantal remembrance, a covenantal memory. And he does so by giving an inspired overview of key points in Israel's history between Moses and David. That's basically how this history runs. From Moses down to David, or really you could even say to Solomon, but basically from Moses down to the inauguration of the kingdom, the monarchy in Israel. It is a dark history. Asaph says that. It is a dark history, and yet it is a hopeful history, especially when you get to the end of it, you see that. The first eight verses of this psalm are a preamble, uh, basically an, an introduction to the whole. He says, give ear that's like saying, countrymen, lend me your ears, or attention, please. He says, give ear. That is, hear what I have to say because it is important. Asaph says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. He's about to give a history lesson, and he says, this is a parable. And he says, these are dark sayings of old. This history is a parable. That's an interesting thing to think about. 
You know, we might think of, of parables as sort of non-historical allegories. Some people uh, even think of the parables of Jesus that way. They're these non-historical allegories. They might as well be myths or something like Aesop's fables. They're not tied to history in any way. But that's not accurate. Actually, the, the parables of Jesus are retellings of Israel's history. The Gospel of Matthew actually quotes this line from Psalm 78 in Matthew chapter 13 to explain why Jesus is teaching in parables. He is doing the same thing as Asaph. He is retelling the dark history of Israel. He is letting that, that history be known. He's retelling that dark history of Israel so that people can understand who they are. And see, this really makes sense because just as Psalm 78 is telling the story of God's people, Jesus' parables are also retellings of the story of God's people. That's the connection. That's why Matthew goes to Psalm 78 to explain why Jesus is teaching in parables. This parable of Asaph in Psalm 78 and the parables of Jesus really have the same theme. They are stories about Israel and about the coming kingdom of God. That's what the parables in the Bible are about. But again, these stories are told in such a way, you might ask, well, okay, so then how are they parables? These stories are told in such a way that they require wisdom to really understand. They're dark sayings, not just in the sense that they track a record of sin, but dark in the sense that they can be hard to understand. The history of Israel that's being recorded here, the history of Israel is a kind of puzzle. It's a kind of riddle that requires faith in order to understand and, and in order to fully grasp. If you want to solve the puzzle, if you want to grasp what the riddle is all about, you've got to have faith. You've got to submit yourself to what's being taught here. And again, Asaph wants fathers to pass along this story, to pass along this parable to their children. Verse 4, he says, do not hide these parables from your children. Tell the generation to come. Uh, he mentions fathers teaching children in verses 3 and 5. Obviously, it's implied there in verse, it's in, in, in verse 4. But what's interesting is, in this psalm, yes, he mentions fathers in a positive way, fathers teaching their children, but he also mentions fathers in a negative way, fathers rebelling against God. So, for example, in verse 8, he talks about um, fathers who rebelled, and he says, don't be like those fathers, those who went before you, who turned against God. See, in Psalm 78, fathers are the problem and fathers are the answer to the problem. Some fathers forget and they fail to pass the lesson of history along to their children. Other fathers remember and they teach their children faithfully. And that's one question that Psalm 78 poses to every father is what kind of father are you? There's two kinds of fathers in this psalm. Fathers are really the key to covenant succession. They're really the key to the faith being passed on to the next generation. Fathers are key to forging links in the chain that God wants carried on from one generation to the next. And one way that fathers forge these links in the covenant chain is by pointing to unfaithful fathers, unfaithful generations in the past and saying to their children, don't be like those fathers, those stubborn and rebellious fathers, that stubborn and rebellious generation in the past. See, this is a psalm for teaching 
the children. And the hope here is that as fathers do teach their children, as they teach their children this history lesson, these stories, these parables, that the children will learn from their fathers, they will absorb this truth, and then they will surpass their fathers in maturity and faithfulness. That's the hope, that the children will be able to stand on the shoulders of their fathers and go beyond their fathers and see further than their fathers and do more than their fathers. But what you find in this psalm is that that very rarely happened in the Old Covenant. You search the Old Covenant scriptures, it's very hard to find a faithful generation, faithful in the sense of passing this faith on to the next generation. Mostly what you have is a record of failure. A generation fails to pass the faith along, and so that generation then wanders in darkness until finally something happens, and, and then there's a restoration, but then it doesn't last for very long. When we get past the preamble of this psalm and into the actual history that Psalm 78 recounts, what we find is a recurring pattern, a repeating cycle. The same thing happens again and again. He's going to traverse the same history again and again. God and his people are contending with one another throughout history. The people keep sinning and God keeps forgiving. The people keep rebelling and God keeps redeeming. The people keep failing and God keeps coming through for them anyway. The people keep forgetting God's covenant and God keeps remembering his covenant and being kind to them anyway. If we were looking at this history merely from a human perspective, we'd have to say this is a record of Israel's lowlights, not her highlights. But that would really miss the point because this is not about history from a human perspective. This is about history from a divine perspective. And so really it's a record of divine highlights. It's a divine highlight reel. It shows the great acts of God again and again in the face of his fickle and ungrateful people. God rescuing his people again and again. God's people wander, they stray away from him, and God comes to reclaim them. God is the hero of this story. Psalm 78 tells a story, and it's actually the people of God who are the villain, and God himself is the hero who rescues them. We see Israel's covenant breaking from one generation to the next here, but we also see God's covenant keeping from one generation to the next. Man breaks the covenant again and again. God repairs the covenant again and again. God provides, and his people grumble. The people sin, and God delivers. It cycles through that pattern again and again and again. Asaph's main focus here is the exodus. And then several great deeds that God did for Israel in the wilderness as they journeyed towards the promised land. And then the battles it took to, to gain the promised land. And then battles with the Philistines once they're settled in the land. Those are the main things he's looking at here. Verses 9 through 16 focus on the tribe of Ephraim. Why Ephraim? Really talks about Ephraim losing a battle. This actually could be a reference to the battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the battle of Aphek when the ark was captured. Shiloh is where the ark was kept, and Shiloh was in the region of Ephraim. And that's what he, this is what he comes back to actually at the very end, so it makes sense that you'd have this at the beginning and the end. But look at the way he describes this. The men of Ephraim were well equipped for battle. They had weapons for war but they were turned back in the day of battle. Why? Because they forgot the Lord and did not keep covenant with him. They did not walk in his ways. 
The hidden or dark reason for Ephraim's defeat is found right here. They refused to walk in God's law, to walk in God's ways. They forgot the great wonders God had done on their behalf. It was not a matter of military strength. That's not, that's not why they lost. They lost because they lacked humble faith. They, they lost because they had forgotten. Verses 12 to 16 then describe some of those wonders they forgot. And you can look at this and you can see it describes the exodus and the Red Sea crossing and the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness, the water that gushed out of the rock. But when God did all those things for his people, how did they respond? Verse 17 says they sinned even more against him. They put God to the test again and again. So for example... He talks here in the psalm about the manna from heaven. They were not satisfied with the manna from heaven God provided. They wanted meat. Now it's interesting, the manna from heaven is called the food of angels. It was heavenly food, heavenly bread. But still, they weren't content with it. And so they cynically asked that question, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Of course, David is going to pose a similar question and answer it in Psalm 23 when he says, God can prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. So yes, God can prepare a table in the wilderness. But the people were cynical. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust the goodness of God. It's interesting that we read a little bit from John 6 this morning as well. The people in John 6, uh, the people they are gathering around Jesus, they actually quote Psalm 78, verse 24, when they demand that Jesus give them bread. They know enough of Psalm 78 to quote it to Jesus as a way of demanding bread, but its parabolic meaning remains hidden from them, and so they actually repeat its dark history. They end up doing the exact same thing that the Israelites in the wilderness did. Jesus, like Yahweh, has given these Israelites bread in the wilderness. And how do they respond? Do they give thanks? No, they grumble and complain. They are obsessed with the wrong kind of bread. And so they miss Jesus' point. They don't see that he is the true bread that has come down from heaven. And they should feast upon him by faith. And that's what will give them eternal life. Instead, they just want bread to satisfy their stomachs, just like the Israelites of old. They can quote Psalm 78, but they don't get what it means its meaning is hidden from them. In Psalm 78, we're told that this angered God. God was angry with them, and this anger is described in verses 21 and 22. He was angry with them when they made these demands because it was a sign they did not trust him, and they did not trust his salvation. They did not trust his saving love. God was angry with them because they doubted God's power and they doubted God's goodness. As if God couldn't help them, he wasn't able to, or as if God wouldn't help them, he wouldn't want to. Their discontented, grumbling, insulted God. And again, if you read John chapter 6, you'll see all these same issues surfacing there. And of course, if we examine our own lives, we can see these same issues surfacing where we doubt the power and the goodness of God. Nevertheless, God gave them what they wanted. God was gracious. They said, we're not satisfied with the manna. We want meat. And so God gave them meat. This is referring to a story in Numbers chapter 11. They wanted meat, and so God gave them quail to eat. And God used a wind to deliver it straight to them, kind of like a divine door dash. God just brings it straight to them. They don't have to do anything. It just shows up on their doorstep, this meat, all they could eat. 
But the same old cycle repeats itself. They refuse to give God thanks. They're not grateful. They continue complaining against God. And so God's wrath comes upon them even when the quail meat is still in their mouths. God does this great thing for them. He gives them what they desire. And do you think they were thankful? No. They are not thankful. Verse 32, in spite of this, in spite of all God does, they still sin. In spite of all God is doing for them, they still rebelled against him. They grumbled and they complained. This is so important to see. Ungrateful people are never satisfied no matter what they get. Ungrateful people are never content. They're never satisfied. Even when they get exactly what they asked for, they're still not happy with it. God gave the Israelites what they wanted and they still weren't content because they weren't grateful. See, some of the patterns we see in Israel's history are patterns I would guess we can identify in our own lives. We too are prone to forget God's past goodness. We too are prone to grumble rather than give thanks. We do not remember God's wonderful works on our behalf. And we don't teach them to our children. We see here in Psalm 78 and the history it's recounting, thanksgiving is the key to contentment. And remembering is the key to thanksgiving. You remember what God has done, you give him thanks, and that makes you content. That's the pattern. God threatens terrible things if we will not be thankful. You ultimately, you will ultimately be more satisfied in life if you learn to crucify the desires of your flesh than if you fulfill them. That's one of the things we just have to understand. You will be more satisfied in life. You will be happier in life if you learn to crucify the desires of the flesh rather than fulfilling them. There can never be any lasting pleasure in sin. You can never get any, la I'm not saying you wouldn't get momentary fleeting pleasure, but there can never be any, la any lasting pleasure in what is sinful, in what God forbids. Sin deceives, sin destroys, sin enslaves. That's all sin can do. That's really one of the dark riddles here in the parable of Israel's history. Getting what you want makes you miserable. That's one of the, one of the hidden dark mysteries that we see here. The more you get of what you want, the less happy you are, unless you trust and thank God with what he gives you. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, with Christmas rapidly approaching. Think about that, kids. Getting what you want is not going to make you happy. You will not be content unless you learn to be grateful. Unless you are remembering Jesus and thanking God for Jesus, I don't care what you get for Christmas, you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to enjoy it for very long. You can't have the joy without Jesus, without Jesus at the center of it all. Israel gets what she wanted, but she's ungrateful, and so she's miserable. Because of Israel's ingratitude, God, in verse 33, says he consumed their days with futility and their years in fear. A life without thanksgiving is a life of futility and fear. That's a lesson wrapped up in this parable, wrapped up in this riddle that is the history of Israel. 
Sure, sometimes they did turn back to God. Occasionally when God's judgments got extremely painful for them, they would return to him. So verse 34 says, when he slew them, they sought him. Verse 35 says, then they remembered that God was their rock. So when things got really, really bad, they did turn back to the Lord. But quickly, they would backslide again and again. Verse 36 says they flattered God, they would praise God, but they didn't really mean it. They lied to God. Verse 37 says they were not steadfast in their faith. They didn't persevere in their faith. They didn't sustain their faith. Yes, God forgave them again and again and again. He remembered them. He remembered their weakness. Even when they did not remember him and his mighty work, still God would not forget his people But as verse 40 says, they continually provoked God in the wilderness. Some translations, like my New King James, some translations here say they limited God in the wilderness. If you read it that way or translate it that way, it would have to mean something like Mark Mark chapter 6, verse 5, that says Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power, it's just because they weren't trusting him, he wasn't going to do these things for them. That's what it would mean. It's not that God can't work it's just that he won't work for people who refuse to trust him so that could be the meaning here I think it's actually better read they provoked God or they grieved God I think that's actually the better translation here we need to understand our sin our refusal to trust and thank God provokes God and it grieves God And again, this provoking follows the same script we've already seen. They forget their history, and so they are doomed to repeat it. And so verses 42 to 56 describe how they forgot the exodus. They forgot how God fought for them. They forgot the plagues is in some way humiliating and defeating one of the gods of Egypt. So this kind of spiritual warfare that's taking place here, God won the battle for them, and yet they forgot, and they went after other gods anyway. But see, there's this, there's this contrast. As it's retelling the story of, 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 of the Exodus, it talks about how God brought his wrath to bear upon the Egyptians, how God fought against the Egyptians for the sake of Israel. God cared for his own people like sheep, guarding them as his own flock, guiding them to safety, even as the Red Sea overwhelmed their enemies. Here again, the psalm is recounting God's goodness, God's great deeds on their behalf. He brought them to Sinai, verse 54, where he gave them his word to be a light to their path and a lamp to their feet. He drove out the nations before them so that the tribes of Israel could claim their allotted inheritance in the promised land. That's verse 55. You read about that in the book of uh, of Joshua. Verse 56, and yet, so by now we know what's coming, and yet, Again, they tested and provoked the Most High God. Even though God did all these things for them, giving them his word, giving them this redemption, giving them the land, still they tested God, they provoked God. Verse 57, they acted unfaithfully like their fathers before them. They repeated the same history. They moved God to jealousy by worshiping carved images, that is, idols. And so what did God do with these idolaters? It says he forsook the tabernacle in Shiloh. That's the part of Samuel that we just looked at. In Samuel, it looks like the Philistines, when they go to battle with the Israelites, they capture the ark that was being kept in Shiloh. 
That's what it looks like when you read Samuel. But here we see the deeper reality. It's not so much that God got captured as it is that God was abandoning the tent in Shiloh because the people had defiled it with idolatry. God left Shiloh. He abandoned his house in Shiloh. His presence among his people centered in Shiloh because he was angry with them. And so God allowed himself to be captured by the Philistines. God allowed his ark to be taken away. From the perspective of Psalm 78, God is sovereign over all of these events. And of course, we saw this when we looked at 1 Samuel. And when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine God, what happens? Dagon is toppled. Dagon is humiliated. Dagon is defeated, which shows you that the Philistines really had no power over Yahweh. Yahweh had not been defeated on the field of battle. Yahweh had given himself over according to his own purposes and plans. So verse 61 describes the Lord going into exile himself. The glory of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, goes into captivity. Again, this is the story of Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Verses 62 to 64 then describe further the Lord's judgment on Israel as he gave the Philistines victory over them. He gave his people over to defeat. He gave the Philistines victory over them. They were slain by the sword, Asaph says. Their young men consumed with fire. Their maidens left husbandless. Their priests were killed. Think of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, killed on the same day. That's what this is talking about. But... At the end of this psalm, verses 65 to 72, we get a glorious reversal as the Lord acts once again to deliver his people. This psalm, which has been so full of dark sayings, now there's this great burst of light as we come to the end of it. Remember, this whole epic retelling of Israel's history is a parable, which means it is prophetic. This psalm not only recounts the past, it foretells the future. It is a preview of things to come. And you especially see that with the climactic conclusion here. The Lord's Ark is in captivity. But then in verse 65, what happens? It says, the Lord awoke as from a slumber. Like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. Like a mighty warrior who takes a sip of wine before he charges into battle and defeats the enemy. He beats back his enemies is what the psalmist says. The ark was captured in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Again, that, that, you know, that's, that's, we, we, we've seen that connection here. This part of the psalm then refers to 1 Samuel chapters 5, 6, and 7. The ark's defeat of Dagon. The ark's return to Israel. Israel's defeat of the Philistines in the battle of Mizpah. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, the battle of Mizpah reverses what happened at the battle of Aphek. God gives his people a great victory, and the ark is restored. God's presence is restored to his people. The Lord gives his people help so they can win this great victory. The people had neglected God's glory and worshipped idols. Instead, they had exchanged the glory of God for the worship of idols. But now we see God can still guard his glory God can restore the glory to Israel. God can lead his people to victory. I think that line there in the psalm about the Lord being like a mighty man who shouts because he he drinks wine before he goes into battle to defeat his enemies and beat them back. I think that's really, really interesting here. Samuel's account, of course, doesn't mention anything about wine. So we're going to ask, well, why is wine brought into this? What is this drink? 
And we might think of the drink offerings that were poured out before the Ark of the Covenant, before the Lord's altar. The, the, the drink offerings of wine that were poured out before the Lord symbolically. Yes, God is drinking those offerings. But what's going on here when the Lord compares himself to a mighty man of war? Obviously, this is not a man getting drunk. It's a man drinking just enough wine to quench his thirst, his parched throat, so he can let out a victory shout as he beats back his enemies. The wine refreshes him as he goes into battle. What is, the, what is Asaph doing when he compares the Lord to a warrior who drinks a sip of wine as he goes into battle? Clearly, this is prophetic. So what is it prophesying? Well, one thing I think we should definitely connect with this is Jesus on the cross. Think about Jesus on the cross. What does he do right before he dies? Jesus is that mighty man going to war as he suffers and dies on the cross and he takes a sip of wine as it is offered to him and then he shouts, it is finished. He takes a sip of wine and then he finishes off the enemy. He takes a sip of wine and he declares victory. He wins the victory for his people, beating back their enemies. Amen. If the story of Israel told here is a parable, the meaning of that parable is found in Jesus. Indeed, Jesus is not just the mighty man here, the, the great warrior who takes a sip of wine and beats back his enemies. Jesus is the one revealed throughout this whole psalm. This whole psalm is really about Jesus. This whole dark history points to the one who is the light of the world. Jesus is the answer to the riddle of Israel's story. This psalm is really about him. He is the hero. The meaning of history, the meaning of Israel's story is found in Jesus. He is the key. And so he's the true Moses leading a new exodus. He's the true Joshua bringing us into the promised land. He's the manna from heaven and the water from the rock. He's the pillar of cloud and fire who lights our way even in the darkness. He's the one they put to the test and he's the one who kept forgiving. And he's the king. He's the king who is promised here. The king who will usher in a glorious kingdom and who will build a temple for the Lord to dwell in. He is the greater David and the greater Solomon that this psalm ends pointing to. See, that's how Asaph concludes this retelling of Israel's history. He ends with Israel at its zenith, with Israel at its most glorious point, with the kingdom of David and Solomon, with the king and with the temple. We see here at the end of this psalm, the Lord choosing David, his servant, and taking him from the sheepfold and putting him on the throne to shepherd his people. He'll be the, the, the shepherd king, the servant king. And we see the Lord building his sanctuary on the chosen heights of Mount Zion, a greater temple, a greater house than the one that was in Shiloh. And so this psalm ends with David and Solomon. It ends with Israel's high point. The shepherd king who rules in glory and wisdom and the king who builds the sanctuary, who builds a house for God. The choice of David to be God's king and the choice of Jerusalem to be the place of God's rule, that's how this psalm ends. 
But of course, all of that is pointing us to Jesus. He is the one who, as verse 72 says, he is the one who shepherds God's people in righteousness and who guides them with skillfulness. He is the one who builds the true temple, the church, the city of God. It's so important to see this psalm ending as it does with this note of hope. It's been so dark right up to this point, and now it's full of light, it's full of brightness, it's full of hope and joy. And really, I think that makes Psalm 78 the perfect psalm for Advent. It's a long psalm full of darkness and dark sayings and a dark history. And then just when you think it can't get any darker, the end of the psalm bursts forth with light, with this brilliant, shining light. The light is now here. The light of the kingdom and the light of the temple and the light of Jesus. The light that shines into the darkness and overcomes the darkness. This history lesson, this dark history lesson ends with hope for the future. The promise of a king and a city and a church, indeed you could say a civilization that will be glorious. That's how this psalm ends. You know, it might seem, reading this psalm as a whole, it might seem that this cycle of sin and rebellion and wrath simply can't be broken. That's just the way things are. It might seem like the fathers are always going to fail. They're always going to fail to teach the next generation. It might seem like history, even the history of God's people, is just one failure after another. It's failure after failure after failure. And so we might ask, are we doomed to keep repeating this sad history? Never making any progress, never growing to any maturity? No. This psalm answers no. Again, Advent and Christmas say no. Advent and Christmas mean that the king is coming, and indeed the king has come. And with the coming of the king, there is new power, there is new hope, there is new light, there is a new temple, there is a new exodus, there is a new victory, there is a new covenant. A covenant not like the old covenant that our fathers broke again and again. This new covenant includes a promise that God made in Malachi, the last book of the old covenant. This promise that when Messiah comes, when this greater David comes, God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so fathers will be faithful to teach their children and pass the faith along. And children will learn the lessons of this dark history so they do not repeat it, so they can live and walk in the light. See, the story Psalm 78 is telling is not finished. This is an epic story that is still being written. Yahweh is the hero of this story, though now we know him as Jesus. And this story is still going on to this very day. God still wants these parables passed on from one generation to the next. And so fathers, this is your calling. Teach your kids, train your kids in this story. And kids, as your fathers teach you, make it your goal to embrace these stories, to, to know this history, and then to outgrow your parents, to surpass your parents in maturity and faithfulness. Make it your goal someday to be a better Christian even than your mom and dad are. And for all of us, what does this psalm mean 
This psalm means we must remember the mighty works of God in Jesus and give thanks. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.